You're listening to the See the Unseen podcast, where our number one focus is creating a little visibility for people who deserve a whole lot of spotlight. I'm your host, Melissa Dorjoff, and I'm here to share some amazing stories that can transform and inspire lives. So get ready to take those blinders off and see the unseen. Welcome to the See the Unseen podcast. And this tonight's sponsor is Respire Home Care Services. Respire is located in 13 states and they provide life-sustaining ventilators and other home care services. Tonight's guest is Gabriella Garbero. Hi, Gabby. Thanks for Hi. being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Sorry, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited for you to be on. And if you remember correctly, I reached out to you probably back in, I think it was like May of last year. And I had said, would you ever want to be on this podcast? Because I saw that you had posted that you had graduated law school. And we're going to talk about that. But I just thought it was the coolest thing because, um, well, let's talk about how we met. So we met years ago. Mm -hmm. When we were, wasn't it the in-car video, the first thing, first time we met? I feel like I met you before that because I remember seeing you and knowing who you were, but I genuinely don't remember when we first met. Okay. Well, I think you were a customer when I was in the wheelchair industry. Mm -hmm. And then I know we did an industry video together and I went out to Mizzou where you were going to college and um, we filmed you in your complex wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So um, for all the listeners out there, um, and I, I'm so used to calling you Gabby. I So That's now I, I know I, I told you that I was going to call you Gabriella. <laughs> but um, Gabby and I have gone way back um, mm -hmm. many, many years ago. She's been in commercials and, and industry videos. And um, so Gabby uh, has a disability. And so Gabby, I want you to talk a little bit about uh, your disability and the fact that you use a complex wheelchair in order to be re, uh, remain mobile and independent. Sure. So I have a disability called spinal muscular atrophy type 2. Um, it's a neuromuscular disease, and basically, it makes all of my um, all of my voluntary like skeletal muscles really weak. So my legs are weak, my arms are weak. Um, and uh, because of that, I'm not really able to move around on my own. So a regular wheelchair wouldn't really do a lot for me, like a one of the hospital ones that you push because my arms are weak. So um, I'm very happy to have access to my complex wheelchair because it has allowed me to not be stuck in bed and allowed me to do some really awesome things with my life. And I... I you know, I didn't realize until we started talking about it, but I do kind of block off my life based on which wheelchair I had. Like, I remember growing up, I had a purple one. I named it Marty McFly because I loved Back to the Future and I remember <laughs> having that one for a long time. And then I had a red one. And then I remember being in high school with my red one. Like, it's just so funny to look back and see how I remember certain things. This is my wheelchair that I had in law school. So, you know, it's a little nostalgic and it's it's just kind of funny to to look at things that way. I never thought about it like that. It's kind of like having a, a favorite outfit, right? Or yeah, you know, it's like part of you. Um yeah. yeah. But you've been you've been using a wheelchair for quite some time. Since what at what age did you start using your complex wheelchair? Yeah, so the tall tale that my family tells, which I do not remember, so I don't know how true it is, but the tall tale that they told me was that when I was about two and a half, I think, um, I had a manual chair and they wanted me to get a power wheelchair because I wasn't really able to play with my friends or, you know, go off and be independent the way little kids should be for their development. Um, and so my insurance company said that I was too young and that I wasn't mentally able to uh, control a, an electric wheelchair. And um, so we had to appeal it. And then the insurance person came out to my house and 
watched me drive and said, wow, that's incredible. She can drive. And then as soon as they left, um, I poked two gigantic holes in the wall of my house. Um, and those holes are still there. So that was <laughs> well, like, good thing they didn't see that. Yeah, 30 years ago. It's the holes aren't there, but you can tell like they repaired it so you can see the uneven part of the wall. It's a little it's a little nostalgic for me to be like, oh yeah, I did that. <laughs> That's when I ran into the wheel into the wall. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, I've I've seen you know, I think at times health plans think that kids can't drive power wheelchairs, but I've seen little kids, like you said, two years old, driving around in a power wheelchair and mm -hmm. and they're getting around. Well, I really think it helped with my independence too, because I think adults view children as like, oh, well, a parent will be able to be there to help them move around and whatever, but there's so much like mental and social development that happens independently away from your parents when you're that age. And so it's it's really, really important that kids have that ability for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about, because I know education has been very important to you. And mm -hmm. I know you went to college at Mizzou um, and then now you've gone to law school and you've passed the bar. And so what kind of a lawyer are you now? So I have a solo practice called Carbero Law, and um, I represent anybody with a disability in Missouri who's dealing with a disability-related issue. So um, my practice is pretty widespread, but most of what I've been doing is um, estate planning. So one of the things I think is really important is that people with disabilities have preparations made in case anything happens to them or in case, you know, they're not able to rely on institutional supports that we would want to apply. So natural disaster planning, making sure you have a plan in that kind of situation, uh, making sure you have a durable power of attorney. So in case you're not able to make decisions for yourself, we want to make sure that those decisions go to somebody who you want them to go to, not a doctor that doesn't know you or somebody who would make assumptions about your life based on your disability that isn't close to reality. So that's what I've been doing. That's most of what I've been doing so far. Um, and it's been really rewarding and really fulfilling. And I'm very glad that I was able to get my law degree and add another tool to my toolbox of advocacy and trying to help people. Wow, that's, that's impressive. And we're going to talk a little bit about coverage and um, health plans uh, that may or may not cover certain wheelchairs, certain prosthetics, um, different um, pieces of equipment. Like um, I'm one, one thing I really want to talk to you about is the Jayco robotic arm, because mm -hmm. I did see some videos of you um, using this piece of technology. And I, I'm going to throw up a, um, just a quick video here and we won't be able to talk while the video is on, but, um, I want to show the viewers out there um, this technology that you've tried to use. Sure. So there you're just opening up a door. Um, another video here. that's using the Jayco robotic arm to eat. So I hear that, and this has really been um, something that's really upset me because I knew that you um, try, you submitted for it to try and get it covered through your insurance. Mm -hmm. And it's been de denied a couple of times. Isn't that right? Yeah, so this journey probably about 10 years ago. Um, I had private insurance as my primary insurance and then Medicaid as my secondary. And through that, my private insurance would not cover it. And because my private insurance wouldn't cover it, Medicaid also denied it. So we were playing, I guess playing that game is the wrong way to say it, but we were doing that dance, I guess, for a few years. And then um, 
eventually when I went back to law school, I was able to get some help from Voc Rehab, which is, um, uh, I don't know if people out there know what that is, but it's like a- yeah, Go ahead and explain that. Yeah, it's a government agency that um, came about, I think in the 70s, and it was, their whole mission statement is to get more disabled people in the workforce. So they will help pay for education, higher education, um, and a lot of adaptive equipment, which is what I was asking them for with the Jaco robotic arm. And um, at the time, they said it was so expensive that I had to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to get it covered. And I couldn't jump through those hoops. And so for that and other reasons, uh, they closed my case. So still don't have the Jaco arm, would still really love the Jaco arm. Um, still really need it and would be able to use it for a lot of things that would really improve my quality of life um but i think now it, i'm kind of still trying to struggle through insurance um when i graduated from law school i was able to graduate with a health law concentration so that required a lot of study into the health insurance system and Medicaid and Medicare and um, a lot of studying about how those how those structures are set up and how they're meant to work and how they actually work and it's a mess. <laughs> it is a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of work, um, a lot of unnecessary cost in my opinion. Um, and a lot of barriers that are put up to prevent people from uh, living a, a good, meaningful lives if they have a disability. Um, it's been one of my big frustrations over the years is just the fact that I think insurance companies in general really don't have enough understanding about how quality of life impacts their bottom line. Um, because I know that if they're able to, you know, pay for something like the Jayco robotic arm, it would end up saving them money because I would have a better quality of life. I'd be more likely to be employed. I would help the economy. I would pay more taxes. I would be able to participate in the workforce in a much better way. And everybody would end up, for lack of a better term, making their money back. Um, but that's not the way most insurance companies view things like that. So um, that's been one of the things I've been working on as a lawyer is trying to trying to figure out the best way for me to participate in the process that would help the most people and provide the best impact. What do you think is the best way? What what needs to happen? What what change needs to take place? Um, I think that. We need to have more lobbyists. Um, I do think that here in Missouri, the, the way that, I'm trying to think of like a nice way to say this, but the way the political system is set up is not really with um, constituents in mind. It's much more about continuing the bureaucracy the way it is and um, allowing businesses to make money directly and not really doing enough in my opinion to improve quality of life so i would say more lobbyists more funding um more understanding more education but i do wonder how much education has been provided for politicians versus what they just don't um because i think it is not prioritized. I don't feel prioritized by the people who represent me. And uh, I wish that wasn't true, but that's how I feel. And that's pretty sad. I mean, it really is. I mean, we live in America. And the fact that, first of all, you are a beautiful woman who has been in a complex wheelchair since the age of two with spinal muscular atrophy. You're working, you went to college, you went to law school, you're a advocacy lawyer, essentially. And you can't even, I mean, what's what's hard is like, 
you know, someone needs to be advocating for you too. And, you know, I know that the industry does, I know that there, you know, there are lobbyists out there, but the laws need to change. And the fact that you have to work so hard in order to get this piece of equipment that could be life-changing for you that would allow you to actually eat or yeah. take a drink. I mean, it's it's just not, you know, I just don't think it's right that that what we're doing for with people with disabilities, it's like, it's almost like people with disabilities are totally unseen and ignored mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And that's what gets me fired up. Um, and that's why part of the reason why I really wanted to do this podcast is that there needs to be more of an awareness that why is it that these people have to jump through hoops to get what they need? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always, I, I say to a lot of people that I say that I went to law school to help people, but a big part of it was I went to law school so I could help myself. Um, so I could understand how systems work and how to progress through them in a way that is helpful to me. Um, and I hope I, I, I want to help other people. I hope I can help other people. But it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that I had to go through law school to understand that I have due process rights when it comes to appealing insurance decisions. I shouldn't have had to go through law school to know that. I should have been aware of that because I'm a part of the system in the first place. And um, I do think that it is getting in some ways better because there are podcasts like yours and since the ADA people in wheelchairs and people with other disabilities are out in the community more often um and so I think that's really good I think it allows people to see us and witness us living a normal life um but in a lot of ways, I wish it was a lot faster because the ADA was passed the year before I was born and I'm still dealing with this. <laughs> so that's crazy. How old are you? I am, 30, I am 33. Wow. So, yeah, I was born in 91 and the ADA was passed in 1990. So that's crazy. And I and what I've been told, I know um, partners in medicine is um the ones that um, sell the Jayco robotic arm. Mm -hmm. And I, they were telling me that it's taking over nine months to get approvals for a mm -hmm. Jayco robotic arm. And I think about, you know, there are companies out there that, that provide prosthetics and um, robotic arms and that you attach to your, um, you know, you attach to your arm. This robotic arm is attached to your complex wheelchair, but it, it's the same thing. It's your, it's your arms. Um, because you have very, if I, if I remember correctly too, you have very limited movement in your hands. Mm -hmm, That's right, true. right. Yep. True. Right. And having this arm would just be life changing because you can't, you don't always have a caregiver around. You don't always, mm -hmm. if you want to get a drink, what do you do whenever no one's around? Well, and that's especially true since COVID. Um, my caregivers, like I don't have anybody right now. I, I live with my fiance and he has a full-time job. So when he's working, I just have to sort of chill until he's able to take a break. If I need a drink or need to go to the bathroom or need to do anything. And yeah, it's it really constrains my quality of life. Um, to tell you the truth, it's part of why I started a solo practice and didn't get a law firm job because I'm not really reliably able to be anywhere or do anything because I can't really do a lot for myself and, or at least like physically. Um, and so something like the robotic arm, I don't, I wish, like you said, it is, it's just an arm. It's like what you can do with your arms. And I wish that people who work for Medicaid and Medicare and insurance companies could see that it is not, I'm not asking for a step up from other people. I'm just trying to be equal. I'm trying to be able to do almost as much as the average person throughout the day. And without, you know, imagine if you couldn't use your hands really all day, it would, you would not really be able to do much. Probably wouldn't be able to hold down a job. And uh, 
I think it's a it's definitely something that I don't know if people don't see it or they don't understand it or they don't want to see it because I think a lot of those decisions are made with dollar signs in mind and not human beings that the decisions will actually affect. So exactly. You know, and I, I think that you're right. I think that people don't, they just don't know what they don't know. Like they don't see people that use complex chairs. They don't think about it. They don't think about how it might affect their lives. Um, I remember a woman and I, I told the story on the last podcast. I also just interviewed another lawyer. Um, yeah. She's on a ventilator and in a complex wheelchair, Megan Parker. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was telling her the story that this woman, Priscilla Carlson, she's since passed away. She had her fiance was blind taking care of her mm. and she you know, we got legislation passed in Colorado uh, to protect access for people with disabilities. And she would tell me that if we had a wheelchair and it was needing to be repaired, she would have to make sure that she didn't drink water. She didn't eat because yeah. if she didn't have a backup chair, she's like, I'm not going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I wouldn't even, you know, I've been in the, in the wheelchair industry for 30 years. Um, you know, it wasn't till just, you know, the last year that I've been in the ventilator space, but, um, I really didn't think about it. So Mm -hmm. I do think that people need to be seen. I think that, you know, getting videos, getting pictures to these health plans and to the Medicaid programs and to CMS so that they see who, who are affected. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's just what, I mean, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I, I know there are people that send pictures, but it's like, these are real people living real lives. And like, you're not just laying around, like you are contributing to society. You're helping other people. I mean, you had to go to law school and you're in law school. You became a lawyer and you still can't get it paid for Like, that's yeah. crazy. Like yeah. we have to, yeah, I mean, we have to go to Missouri Medicaid and go meet with some legislators to you know, change their thought process on this. Let's do it. I, I, I am ready to. I am ready to fight that fight. I, I, if what you were talking about with um. So one thing that what you just said reminded me of was uh, I had a friend who I met at MDA summer camp when I was growing up, and her brother had muscular dystrophy, and he was only able to shower when he was at MDA camp over the summer for the whole year. The rest of the time he had to do bed baths because he couldn't afford a shower chair and their house was not accessible. And that kind of thing is absurd. It's absurd. There's no reason that it should be that hard. It's interesting that you say that because um, I met a woman in Oklahoma who had a little girl and I think she had cerebral palsy, Um, but she had not I went down there. She was kind of upset with our company. And I said, you know what? I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to go meet her in person. And Mm -hmm. so I did. It's this little bitty town in in, uh, Oklahoma. And um, she's like, my daughter has not, like, she's struggling with bathing her for days and for weeks and sometimes months because, you know, she can't pick her up. She was too heavy. Well, I went down there and I just, I couldn't even believe it. And I, so I, I literally call my brother on the phone and I'm like, he's a, he's in construction. Okay. He's Uh been a carpenter his whole life. And like, um, can you build, uh, an accessible bathtub? He's like, uh, probably. And he goes, and I said, well, can you talk to your company or something? Like, I don't have any money to, you know, from our company, but like, can you, you know, figure it out? And he said, let me talk to my company. And they donated all the materials. Um, bought this bathtub that you just opened the door and she could, uh, you know, wheel her wheelchair in. And he went down there on his birthday and his birthday is actually uh, coming up uh, February 19th, I think. Mm. Um, And he went down, this was years ago. He went down on his birthday and he, and he built her a bathtub and, and she like called, you know, she sent me this email saying, you know, my daughter hasn't had a bath in months, you know, because we just can't lift her. All she would do is, you know, use a washcloth. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think how sad is that? And I remember like Rankin Jordan Pediatric Hospital, um, Dr. Holkamp would show me they have these big, huge tubs. And a lot of these kids, you know, haven't been able to get baths and they put them in these accessible tubs. And so I really do believe that 
it's not that they want to make these kind of decisions. It's like they just don't know, you know, what people are struggling with. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know I, just me, myself, with my shower chair, I've had the same shower chair since I was 17. I'm 33. It's got holes in it. It's got probably mold. I'm not going to check. Um, but I can't get another one because Medicare doesn't pay for it and Medicaid won't pay for it when you're over 21. So it's just, it makes no sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I think the people who are making those decisions, you know, you see one thing I realized was in law school, you see the promise of all of these laws. You see the history of the disability rights movement. You see the rehab act, section 504. Then you have the ADA, then you have, Olmstead, you have all of these really important and integral laws that have come about over the last 50, 60 years, and they happen, and then there's nothing, no follow-up. There's just no... So when somebody who doesn't understand what it's like to be disabled looks at it, they go, oh, well, you have the ADA, you have... Like, what more do you want? <laughs> Basically, you have all these laws that are you know, telling everybody that they have to accept you. And so like, what else do you want really? And it's like, well, I want enforcement. I would like it if that was actually followed through, but that's not what's been happening. What's been happening is laws are passed and then maybe regulations are passed and then they're never looked at ever again. And that's been one of the, one of the big advocacy things that I've been working on is the marriage penalty, which is, if without going too deep into it, um, if you're on social security disability, um, SSI or SSDI, when you get married, if the person you're marrying is not on those assistance programs, um, you more likely than not will get completely cut. And with Medicaid and Medicare being attached to those assistance programs, that means if I get married, um, I would lose all of my health care. So that's a law that was passed in 1972, and it's never been updated. And so that kind of thing happens a lot in disability policy, where we'll go through all this effort to pass a law, and then it gets passed, and then there's just, they call it benign neglect, because it's this it gets left to the side and never followed up on, never dealt with, never updated. Um, and that's what I see a lot in a lot of different disability law areas. Yeah, yeah I met a woman, um, I took a speaking class uh, to develop a keynote and she was in it and she's in disability. Um, she kind of does some research and that sort of thing. And she mm-hmm. said, if she makes so much money, like she will lose her Medicaid. Um, And I mean, she has all these multiple surgeries and it gets very costly. So it's almost like she's being penalized for actually working. And she can really only work from the hours of about 10 to 2 because it just takes her a little bit longer to get ready and she fatigues easily. But she's getting up and she's trying and she's working. And so Mm -hmm. it's just, I don't know, but the laws have to change for these people. Yeah. And a lot of the laws were written before... um so in 2009, there was an alteration made to the Rehab Act, which was passed in the 70s. But in 2009, it was a Supreme Court decision called Olmstead. And that was the law that said that people with disabilities have to be offered um, care in what's called the least restrictive environment. So what that basically means is we cannot be pushed into nursing homes if we don't need it, it's what created the home and community-based services waiver system. Um, and it really changed a lot because before that, the ADA existed. So we were able to get public places, but a lot of us lived in nursing homes. So none of us were going to be going into accessible buildings and letting people see us because a lot of us were locked away. And the a lot of these laws were made at that time when nobody you could defer your entire life and never see somebody in a wheelchair. 
because everybody in your town or your state or whatever would, you know, either be in a hospital or a nursing home or stuck in their home because they had no way to get anywhere. So it's definitely, it's disappointing but understandable why things have been moving so slowly, but not acceptable in any case. It doesn't really matter why. I just, I want things to change. If not for me, then for the next generation. Yeah, I remember um, my old uh, boss, our old CEO, Bob Goy, um, he was a pioneer in the industry. And he said that he can remember when, you know, people were in the nursing homes and that they were, you know, cutting foam backs and, um, you know, having these pressure relieving cushions. And it wasn't until, you know, it wasn't that long ago, you know, probably like 50 years ago, maybe that people mm -hmm. were, you know, that they were developing complex wheelchairs and people were getting more out and, you know, out mm -hmm. in the community and that they were maybe more visible. Um, and so I think things improved a lot at one point. And then now it's like, you know, it seems like everybody's all about cutting cost. And yeah. I think when it also, um, you know, started turning into managed care and mm -hmm. that's when it, there were problems as well. Um, you know, I say, I think some of the Medicaid programs also don't have the capacity to really manage the benefit. And so mm -hmm. they look to the health plans to do it. And I don't even know that it, it's that the health plans don't want to do the right thing or anything. I think it's just that they really need to be educated on who, you know, who uses this benefit. And, and these are not like what you see on television, you know, back in the day when there was the scooter store and, you know, mm -hmm. hover around and all of those, but, you know, these are people who, it's not just grandma or grandpa needing to get around. It's for people who have severe disabilities um, that are living in these chairs. They don't get up, you know, they don't go walk mm -hmm. out of their chairs. They live in these chairs. Yeah. So when that was, when you came to Mizzou to do that video, that was what we were, that was what I talked about a lot was it was, um, if I recall, it was about getting Medicare to pay for more complex wheelchairs because a lot of insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid were saying, well, yeah, but like they shouldn't get like one that can go outside. Like, and oh, yeah, I got on my soapbox the other day about that whole, you know, because it was not the intent of Congress. No. It was, you know, wheelchairs are considered durable medical equipment and durable medical equipment is for use in the home. So then yeah. it's like CMS got onto that and said, oh, well, it's for use in the home. You can't take your wheelchair outside. And it's like everybody started thinking like, no, you can't take your wheelchair outside. It's like, no, you can take your wheelchair outside. It just meant that it fell into this like DME category that was primarily for use in the home. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, something has to change on that because mm -hmm. it's just ridiculous to think that people aren't going to that use their wheelchair, that live in their wheelchair are not going to be need to go to the doctor's office or go outside into the community. Um, and the Medicaid, I'm sorry, the Medicaid's actually have the laws like for to that there's federal law that says you have to allow for community access. Mm -hmm. And then I think the managed uh, Medicaid plans um, sometimes get confused on that. And it's really like they they have to follow the Medicaid laws. Yeah, I have dealt with that several times, the waiver that I'm on that provides for my caregivers uh, when I have them. Um, they used to not allow me to leave my home with the caregivers, which I just did it anyway <laughs> and said, sue me because I'm not going to stay inside my house all the time. Um, I'll fight you. Like, that's fine. And nobody ever fought me on it, but that law was, it, I don't even think it was a law. I think it was like a policy that got conflated into a law, but it was never actually a law because it would have contradicted Olmstead. It would have contradicted the whole idea of the home and community-based services waiver system. It would have, it just didn't make any sense. And um, for a long time, they were telling me that I couldn't leave the home with my with my caregiver and it just it's the kind of mentality that i feel a lot of the lawmakers have which is oh well if you really need help then this is fine but 
if you really want to be out in the community, then like, why do you need help? <laughs> and it's like, that's not how disability works. And that's not how being like a human being works either. That's not how any of this works. Um, and so I think things like, like we keep saying, they're getting better, but they really, really need, in my opinion, a reality check about what life is actually like when you're disabled and not um, to try to say this the right way, to make it not ideological. Because right now I think we have an ideological problem where disabled people are seen as lazy or they should be working or we should have work requirements for Medicaid and you should at least try. And then if you try and you go to work, then it's, oh, well, then you're not so disabled that you really need this benefit, right? And so you lose no matter what. Um, so it's it's really, really frustrating to be walking that tightrope all the time. Well, I think that they like to say, well, this isn't medically necessary. We don't, we don't pay for quality of life. Mm -hmm. Really? Like, and to me, or, you know, this is, it's for safety issue. You know, mm -hmm. this is not medically necessary. Well, you know, like if I would look at the robotic, Jayco robotic arm, I'd be like, well, how medically necessary is it for you to have your arms? You know, yeah. and how much would you pay for your arm? <laughs> you know, I think that <laughs> um, if, if the tables were turned, I think that there would be a different answer. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And I definitely think so too. I think, Fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to you can tell when a politician has a family member who's disabled because they did it. <laughs> like, they're usually the ones who are like, no, of course you should be able to use a wheelchair outside. What do you mean? You know, they're the ones who are actually advocating for it. And I, I say fortunately, unfortunately, because I wish it didn't take that. I wish politicians could represent their constituents and not their own interests. But that's another conversation for a different day that will take us a lot longer than the time that we have on this podcast. But um, yeah, it can be really frustrating to have to, it's also like a dignity thing because having to explain to people why I really need a shower or why I really need the ability to like open a door is kind of demeaning because of course you don't have to say that you don't have to justify why you need to shower a certain number of times per week or why you need the ability to have certain doorknobs so you can open the door in your own house like there's just so much that you get used to feeling not worth it and i wish people didn't have to feel that way and i hope that future generations eventually don't have to deal with the indignity of having to justify every single decision they make daily. Um, I hope we'll get well, there someday. I want you to know that you are worth it. Oh. And there are a lot of people that want to, you know, fight for, you know, what you need and what people with disabilities need. Um, you know, and I, and I read a comment, you know, more people with disabilities need to be speaking up for themselves too. Um, but I just know that, you know, they have so many other challenges that it, you know, how many people are gonna, like you said, you had to go be a lawyer in order to advocate for yourself, which is, mm -hmm. that's why I got started in this is like, I just could not stop, you know, telling the story. Um, I knew that if I could just get a hold of someone and got their ear, that any reasonable person would make a good decision for, you know, these people. Um, and it's, you know, I guess that's really the reason, you know, I started doing it, but more and more people, I, I want there to be more visibility, more awareness of what people with disabilities, of their challenges and what, what they struggle with. Um, Cause we can do better as a, as a country, as people, we can do a lot better than what we're doing today. So yeah. I thank you for all that you're doing for yourself and for everybody else. Uh, Gabby, I mean, it's so impressive. Uh, uh, well, it's not very much yet. And I hope that I would really love to do some kind of impact litigation with this kind of thing. Um, I would love to be able to advocate, but 
unfortunately, every time I've asked anybody, like, hey, do you need any, like, lobbying help? Or, like, is there, how can, like, I just asked my case manager, who's in charge of authorizing all my um, caregivers to come into the home. I said, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble getting caregivers. Who, like, should I write my senator? Like, who can I, who, who do you need me to advocate to? that you guys need more funding. And she was like, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> this whole system is so confusing and it's such a mess. Um, I don't really know. I don't know who's in charge of making this decision. I don't, it's like a web, you know, there's so many little people who have to gatekeep, you know, certain things that it's just, it's really, really hard. And it is really exhausting. And I think, you know, before I went to law school, one of the main reasons that I wanted to go, besides like being able to take care of myself, was that I was trying to move to California and the Medicaid system is state by state. So there's no real meaningful transfer system. And so I wasn't able to move to California and still get the kind of care that I have here. Um, and that seemed really messed up. And so I was like, well, that's weird. And then I started reading more about the law. And then I was like, well, I might as well just study for the LSAT. And then I studied for the LSAT and I got a pretty good score. And then I said, well, I mean, I might as well just see if I can get into any law schools. And then started applying, got into a law school and was like, well, might as well go. And then that's just sort of been how my career has gone. And I am very privileged to be able to say that because I I am not stuck in my home or I wasn't at the time. I was not, you know, disempowered to the point that I felt like I couldn't make a difference. And it's really, really easy to fall into that. I've fallen into it before. Um, I went through, not to be too like bummy on this, but I went through a really bad depressive episode probably about eight years ago. Um, it was when I was starting to do all this research into the laws and see how things were done. And it's so difficult to um, have the stamina, not only to go through all the things in life when you have a complex disability, but also to like use whatever energy you have at the end of the day to fight for more. Um, even if you need it, you, at the end of the day, you're tired. And so I understand that. And I think going to law school has really, if it's done nothing else for me, it has made me feel empowered because I understand why decisions were made the way they were in some ways. And I understand how silly they are. And it, it's in a way kind of satisfying because one of the things I kept coming across in school when I was studying disability policy was like, oh no, that's not just me. This is really stupid. Like, oh no, this is this is not just me thinking this is weird. This is weird, right? And everybody would say, yeah, this is really weird. I wonder why it's written that way. And it's like, yeah, I wonder that too. I have to live in it, you know? Um, and so I think, that's a really good thing that law school has done for me and that being a lawyer has done for me because now I feel a lot more empowered to fight those battles when before I was just tired and I really didn't have the energy at the end of the day. But Yeah, and you know, I'm not in a complex wheelchair and I'll tell you, I did it for 30 years and I was really tired and really almost burnt out um, mm -hmm. because it, it seems like it's so simple, right? I mean, you have a complex wheelchair, you need it to be mobile and independent. And it seems like a logical thing to pay for. And mm -hmm. there, when you mentioned that each state Medicaid has their own sets of policies and rules and fee schedules and reimbursement, um, mm -hmm. you know, that is gets really complicated. And so some of these things, they all point to CMS, they all, all point to Medicare. And Medicare kind of sets the stage. And that's where a lot of things need to change is either, yeah. you know, Medicare make the policy changes, um, you know, make the reimbursement changes. Also, United Healthcare, as large as they are, if they did it, probably everybody else would follow suit. Mm -hmm. um, every state Medicaid 
Uh, I know that, you know, in Wisconsin, we before I left New Motion, we had started a, a bill there. Um, well, there was a bill there for uh, repairs and, and that just, I think that they got a new bill passed. But before I left, we, we got the Standing with Dignity bill passed. Joel Clayfish, um, who's a lobbyist in Wisconsin, um, you know, him and Ted Malkowski and uh, Karen Roy and a few of us, Tara Kirsten, who was a chief medical officer, um, all went up there and lobbied and, and got a bill passed. Um, and so now they do pay for standing, um, the standing feature on power wheelchairs. Um, but that needs to happen at the federal level so that, yeah. e you know, so that every health plan out there and every state Medicaid program will then follow Medicare. So Gabby, if you could just go to DC and start <laughs> lobbying, I think that uh, we can make you know, something happen. You know, you know Dan Muser there, um, you know, Dan Muser is a Congressman and he, you know, used to run pride mobility, um, uh, or quantum. And I, I tell Dan, I think he should run for president because <laughs> if he runs for president, then every single person in America that has a disability <laughs> is going to get the right complex wheelchair. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> Dan well, that, for would president. A, that would be a nice dream, wouldn't it? Um, to not have to fight those battles anymore. Um, I really hope that day comes and I would love to be in DC, but I think my fiance would kill me if I made us move out there because of the traffic. Um, That's what Zoom there. calls are for. Zoom. I know, right? I'm like, we don't even have to leave DC. We can just stay there all night, you know? Never have to get in the car. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I, I do think that representation in politics, federal politics, is really, really important. Um, I think we also need more disabled lawyers to challenge these things. Um, I am one person and I, as far as I know, I'm the only person doing what I'm doing here um, in Missouri, probably not, but we need to find each other. If you're out there, uh, call me. Um, but if you're I think, a lawyer and, you're in, and you have a disability, call Gabby right now. Yeah, right now. Um, no, but uh, I think there really, I, I, I want there to be more solidarity and more of a, of a unified push for this kind of thing, because you and I can talk about this for hours and we'll probably come to a lot of agreements and probably be able to solve a lot of problems. But until somebody with a lot of power listens to us, it's just going to be talking and that's what I've encountered a lot is having really simple solutions for problems um, that just don't get implemented because if I'm going to say it like very nihilistically, people don't want to bother. But if I want to say it more optimistically, people don't know that those problems even exist. Um, I would like to believe in the optimistic part. Some days I don't. Sometimes I just believe that it's just easier for people to not want to bother with us. But um, if that is the case, I hope it's not always the case. And I hope I'm wrong that it's not the case right now either. But either way, I think um, if we had more lawyers challenging these kinds of things, um, it would be a lot easier for the people making decisions for us to see that the decisions being made are wrong and not only wrong, but they are harmful because, you know, for so many years of me not having the Jayco arm, how much more dexterity would I be able to have? How much more work would I be able to do? How much more easily could I get in and out of my house? You know, um, things like that. And that's just me personally, but if this was more widespread, think about how many more disabled workers you could get in the workforce or disabled people could be just in the community doing their own thing and living a happy life. Um, but unfortunately, I think insurance companies are not in the business of giving people happy lives. Um, they're in the business of making money. And that's what I found a lot is if it's not right in front of them as an obvious um, net benefit, then it's not really going to go anywhere. Um, but interestingly, the more studies that have been done, the more studies that I've read, um, there has been a lot of legal literature on the topic and legal studies 
that have been done on um, insurance companies. And when you allow for quality of life improvements, it saves insurance a lot of money because people right. are not getting sick. People are not falling because they're not able to reach something and they don't have help. Um, they're not falling in the shower because they can't get a shower chair. Um, they're healthier because they're able to go to the bathroom as many times a day as they need instead of zero times, which is how much the state will pay for, which is a whole other topic that I have a huge problem with. But um, I just, I hope one day it changes. I don't know when that'll happen. I'm sure, I, I want to believe it will eventually, but I don't know how far away that is. Well, you know, the DME benefit is, it's like less than 6% of the overall spend. And so it's not that much, you know, mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, a lot of these health plans are talking about value-based programs. Well, you know, this is a no brainer, you know, the cost of to treat a pressure sore is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, someone could get a good pressure relieving cushion um, and have tilt on their, you know, tilt and recline on their power wheelchair. So, yeah. I mean, these are, it's not rocket science. So I do think that, you know, you can make a difference. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, you know, I think about like, you know, yeah, it's nice that we get on here and talk about it. But like you said, there needs to be action. Um, action needs to happen. People need to stop, you know, putting their blinders on and, you know, really see these people and see what they're going through. So um, that's one of the reasons I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast, because I really think that with your reach and your knowledge and understanding of the way that the systems work and not just the way they affect individual lives, but the way that the industries work, I think that's really, really necessary and it's really important. So I'm really grateful for you and I'm grateful for people like you who are able to, you know, kind of help us get a louder voice, you know. Oh, thank you, Gabby. You know, it's kind of like I, I really didn't even know how to continue to make an impact because, you know, I lost my job, but my job was eliminated after 30 years. And um, and I was really kind of heartbroken because this is what it was. I felt like my work was always meaningful work and that I was helping and trying to make a difference and, um, you know, doing the right thing for people with disabilities. So I just you know, I started, I took some time off and I went to work for this, uh, for a ventilator company who also has, have a lot of challenges with, you know, ALS population and such. But um, I just kept thinking I could do more. I need to be doing more. And, and how can I make an impact? And so, yeah, for me, it's just, I just thought, let's just bring some visibility to these people and let's get some cool stories on here. Because, you know, I had this guy too, that, um, uh, he has uh, no arms and no legs and uh, Dayton Weber, and he is a cornhole champion. So I had him on my podcast. I had um, Sarah Hardwig. She was um, she's blind and she sings at the Bluebird Cafe. She's super talented as you know, so she sings with Low Cash and Lauren Elena and, you know, uh, Lady A, all these really cool bands. And um, that was kind of my goal. And I'm like, okay, Gabby is a lawyer now. Like I have to have her on. Um, so yeah, for me, I just want to, this was all about bringing visibility. I hope that someone out there sees what's going on and you know, how do we bring about change? You know, it just takes, you know, it does take a village. I, I say, um, you know, to make things happen. Um, but I do believe just enough people, um, you know, getting visibility about it, that things can change. So I'm going to remain hopeful. And if there's anything I can ever do to help you, Gabby, we, I want to go figure out how you get this arm uh, <laughs> because I think you deserve it. Or if somebody that's a millionaire out there that was wants to, you know, pay for Gabby's arm, then, uh, you know, just go ahead and Venmo Gabby Garbero. Yeah. Yeah. I have a whole list of, uh, have a durable medical equipment that I would love to have somebody pay for. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, thank you so much. And I, I hope that one thing I've always tried to do is I'm aware that I am more privileged than a lot of people. I'm able to be on Medicaid and Medicare. I'm able to advocate for myself. I'm able to, you know, speak out and have 
these opportunities to like talk with you and um, a lot of people don't. And so I hope I can leave a little bit of a trail for other people to feel a little bit less like a place isn't for them. So, you know, when I went to law school, I was really grateful to a lot of the uh, administration. I went to St. Louis University and they were very proactive about making sure that things were accessible for me. And I am very, very grateful for that. And there was another girl in a wheelchair who came a couple, of, I think one year behind me and I was so happy to see her because it just meant that there were more of us, you know, coming through the system. And I want that to be, um, I want that to be easier for people. I want it to seem less scary um, and more like something that is worth your time because it can be really easy, like we've said, to just be really discouraged. Um, but I wanna, I wanna have a seat at an important table and be advocating for what I believe. And I think everybody should have that ability to do that if they want to, so. That would be great. Do you ever think about maybe even pulling people on a Zoom call, kind of like a, you know, starting some sort of, you know, membership or group or support group um, where you could help them of just finding the different things that they're, you know, challenges um, that are going on? Yeah, and you know, that's that's really what my law firm is. It's not just let me represent you in court. It's really, uh, hey, do you need a resource? Let's find one. If you, one of the one of the big things that I'm really passionate about, which I haven't really gotten a lot of people who need this, but maybe they just don't know I'm there, but um, being able to find the right kind of care that you need is really, really difficult and really complicated. And I, I'm very lucky that I kind of stumbled into my um, Medicaid waiver that I'm on, which allows for a lot of the care that I need. Um, not everything, but a good amount of it. And I, I want to help connect people to those kinds of resources too. So, um, you know, I always say I should have gone to social work school, but I didn't have enough time. Um, I was a little busy with law school too. Um, so, and I always say I should have went to law school, but I didn't want to spend all that time in school. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I had somebody say to me once, um, it's three years and three years from now, do you want to be looking back saying you should have started three years ago? Because three years from now, you'll be done. So I don't know. That's a good way to look at it. I'm a, I'm a big advocate for doing what you want while it makes you happy. That was the advice I got was... If you want to go to law school, when you get to the point where it's not making you happy anymore, just stop. And I haven't gotten to that point yet. So I'm happy to be able to use my skills to help people in the best way I can. So That's so great, Gabby. What, do you, what kind of advice do you have for young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do? Um, oh, that's a really good question. Really hard to answer, though. Um, I guess I would say do what makes you happy. Like I just said, um, don't be stuck in other people's expectations of you. Um, when I was talking about going to law school, one of the people who um, were supposed to support me in my journey, who worked for a state agency that was meant to help me uh, go through law school was really discouraging. And she basically told me to leave her office and like not come back and I didn't need to be doing this and I needed to really rethink what my abilities were. And um, it helped me a lot to live life with the mentality of, I'm the only person who knows me. I know what I'm able to do. Um, if other people are standing in my way and trying to tell me what my abilities are, um, they might need to get some attitude from me, but they need to be told that that's not the way that we're gonna live my life. Um, and I think just being comfortable with the consequences of my decisions, because some of the things she said she was right about, not the discouraging me, but she was very much like, you know, 
the legal industry is oversaturated. There are a lot of lawyers and a lot of them don't have jobs. Um, a lot of them don't get paid as well as you think. So you need to, you know, think about this again. And so because of that, I said, well, you know what? I'm not really doing this for the money. I'm doing this for the, <laughs> for the, uh, I guess, accomplishment. Um, and also like, well, that just sounds like I need to open up my own niche uh, area of practice. And that's exactly what I've done. Um, and so I think having that kind of mentality where you're not really plowing through obstacles, but kind of sidestepping them, um, that mentality has served me really, really well because sometimes I'm tired. I don't want to fight people. I just go around them. And that's a lot easier and a lot less taxing for me. Um, so I guess that's what I would say to people who are young, um, especially if you're disabled. There's a lot of, um, I think, a lot of steeliness that you have to have when you have a disability and you're trying to live independently, you're trying to really do anything. Um, you have to be tougher than you might naturally feel. But just know that there are people who have gone before you and you also don't know who's watching you. So if you do a really cool thing, somebody a few years younger might watch you do that really cool thing and say, hey, they did that really cool thing. I can do that really cool thing too. Um, right. And that's really satisfying when that happens. I've been very lucky to see that a couple of times. And um, so yeah, just have faith in yourself. Really great advice. Thanks. Gabriella, what do you want to be known for? I don't know, man. That's a really good question. I think um, if I could leave the world a little bit better than it was when I came into it, um, that would be good. I would love to have people think of me after I'm gone fondly. Um, I always say there are so many things that I do that I think, you know, if I was born 10 years earlier, I don't think I'd be able to do this. If I was, the, um, Olmstead, the law that said that people with disabilities needed to be offered help in the community and not just in nursing homes, uh, that came about in 2009, which was the year I graduated high school um, and started living independently. And um, the ADA was the year before I was born. So, I've been very lucky in a lot of ways that the timing has worked out very, very well for me. And when those things happen and when I go through things and say, I think, I, I, I kind of look around and say, I think nobody like me is here right now except for me. Um, does this mean I'm a trailblazer? Or does this mean that the people who did this before are so far ahead of me that I have a lot of catching up to do? Like, I don't really know. Um, but I think keeping that knowledge of being part of a lineage of people who are fighting for a better life for the next person in line, um, has really changed my perspective, viewing my life like that, rather than as, oh, I'm the first person to ever do this. I'm the only person to ever do this. Um, but just being aware that there are people behind me. And if I, I think to say this more succinctly, sometimes when I go through things like that, I think I am pretty sure that this door was opened for me by somebody else. And I don't know who it was, but I'm grateful for them. Um, and so if I could do that for somebody, even if they don't know it's me, even if they say, wow, you know, at St. Louis University Law School, there's a Hoyer lift in the bathroom. I wonder why that happened, but awesome. Um, that was me, but people don't need to know that. Um, I would just be glad for steps to be a little bit easier for whoever's coming behind me. Wow, that's really great, Gabby. Um, I think that <laughs> you've led a really good path, right? And um, 
and I think people that have seen your work and see everything that you're doing is they're going to want to help and get involved as well. So keep doing what you're doing because you are making a difference. And I think sometimes I, you know, I've said the impact can be invisible. We don't know maybe the words that we're saying or the things that we're doing are making an impact, but doesn't mean that they're not. It might just be that, you know, you just never know. You never know if a kind word that you say to someone makes their day or, um, you know, when people are lonely or um, saying something kind to them that it can make all the difference in the world. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, everybody just whether they're small steps or big steps, whether we get legislation passed or we don't um, still just making sure we're out there talking about it, advocating for people. It's it's important. And what you're doing is very meaningful work. And, you know, if we can get something approved for you then I think that would be really great too. So and if I can help with something to, you know, we'll figure it out. Um, but I think that uh, you deserve to have a, the Jayco robotic arm to make your life easier. So well, we'll figure you. it out. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, I'm grateful to have your help and I hope that, you know, I can maybe blaze a trail if one hasn't already been blazed. So. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast tonight, Gabriella. I know it's, you said you're a night owl. It's uh, 9 11 uh, <laughs> right now. And um, I'm not a night owl, but um, I appreciate you taking the time to, um, you know, speak to the listeners and, and speak to people who um, need to hear your message tonight. Well, I am grateful for you for staying up for me. Uh. <laughs> well, I'm going to go to bed now uh, because I do have to work in the morning. But um, thank you so much. Um, and for the viewers out there, if you like what you hear, please make sure that you go to like uh, like me on my Facebook page on the See the Unseen Facebook page, as well as uh, my YouTube page. Please go there and subscribe and uh, have a great night. And thank you so much.